Welcome to Essential Coaching Conversations with Kyle and Asim. The real, relevant, necessary conversations to help you navigate coaching, teaching, learning, and life. Coach, welcome in to episode 51 of Essential Coaching Conversations. And as you can see from the title, this is a part two. It's a continuation of last week's episode. We're just picking right up where we left off. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, click off of this one. Go listen to that one first. It'll provide a little more context as to what we're talking about in this week's. But we wanted to record this intro for you just so you don't feel like we skipped the number 51 in our athlete shoutouts. I mean, Kyle, I think that's probably the highlight of the show. And maybe more so than any of the content that we actually put into the show. Like these athlete shoutouts have sort of taken on a life of their own, and the reactions that we get uh, from certain members of the EC fam about who they thought we were going to pick, who we actually picked, how, mon- how many of the players we picked ran roughshod over their teams in the past. Um, you know, all of those things. So, Kyle, I'm going to let you start today. Uh, who is your number 51? So, there are actually um, quite a few number 51s. Like, this was sort of like low key. This was a, a, a real solid number. And I don't think a lot of people maybe have a lot of 51s that kind of jump off the page. Um, but there are actually quite a, quite a few um, that I thought were were pretty worthy. Um, and I wanted to go a little obscure, um, but I'm going to have a hard time kind of going away from this guy right here uh, because I, again, I get into these like nostalgic 90s baseball modes. I got to go Randy Johnson. I'm going Randy Johnson. World Series champ, five-time Cy Young, 10, all, 10 all-star selections, World Series champ, MVP. Um, my brother and I usually talk about like what are the things you would least want to do in sport. Like, would you, would you rather like would you rather stand in and face Randy Johnson, or would you rather try to tackle Jerome Bettis? You know, or would you rather, you know, get in a ring with Mike Tyson? Those kind of things. And Randy Johnson was always like the most intimidating. Now I'm a righty, so I would imagine like being a lefty that had to have been one of the most intimidating things in sport was standing in as a left-handed batter. And watching this guy literally like reach halfway to the plate <laughs> before he let the ball go. And I just have the visions of the bird imploding on that pitch. And I'm just like, I, I, that would be me, right? Like if I got in there one time with him. So I'm going to go Randy Johnson episode. So, so here's a, something interesting I found out the other day. Do you know what Randy Johnson does right now, now that he's retired? I do not. He's a professional wildlife photographer. He just goes no on way. safari and takes dead serious. He goes on safari and just takes pictures of animals and he has his own company. It's like Randy Johnson photography. Guess what the logo of his company is? An exploding bird. It's an upside down <laughs> dead bird. Look this shit up. I'm telling you, it's, it's real. That is a real thing. Look I'm going to have to. All Randy right. Johnson photography. Look for the logo. It's a black and white logo. It's like a diamond with a bird in it. Holy smokes. You see it? I see it. I found this out the other day. I did not know that's what he was doing in, in his retirement. 
it if you google this which i strongly suggest you do there are some pictures of him in like awkward positions because the dude's mm -hmm. like 6'10 you know and it's him like crouching down trying to i guess like sneak up on <laughs> wildlife or other things i don't uh, know how randy johnson can sneak up on anybody uh, i don't either i don't either that's really funny i had no um, idea i'm glad i i'm glad i went with him. i almost went against him and i like there really are a lot of good 51s out here. Um, so I'm glad that I went with that one because I learned something new. So I, it's so funny that you said Randy Johnson because I think this might be my first baseball player ever while, while we've been doing this. And I thought for a moment you were going to go with this person. Do you know who I'm talking about? I'm, I have an idea. Ichiro. Another Mariner. Yep. Yep. Ichiro is that guy is he might he's a machine. He played for like 40 years in Japan and in the MLB. Never aged a day. He's like a vampire. Never aged a day. Still the greatest slap hitter of all time. And just unbelievable. And like just watching him work. I think I actually got to see him play live. If I remember correctly, I think I did. I didn't do anything like spectacular or anything, but the fact that he was also like excellent stealing bases, excellent in the outfield, like defensively was not a liability, just an all around like incredible baseball player. And at his stature, you would not expect that to be the case, but he just, he mm -hmm. put on for all the short guys in the MLB. So two opposite sides of the spectrum here, right? Like Randy Johnson's 6'10". And mm -hmm. I think Ichiro's like, I don't know, five foot four on a good day, maybe five and seven or something. He's a really smart number. Guy. Both wore number fifty one for the Mariners, which is mm -hmm. pretty cool. So we haven't gotten the same person yet. But I had thought about Ichiro, but um, again, I got to go a little bit further back into the the nineties mm -hmm. Mariners because I, I I I think I've told this story before. My brother and I playing MLB ninety eight on PlayStation oh, yeah. with Edgar Martinez and Jay Buhner and Joey Cora and uh, King Griffey and Randy Johnson was pitching. And so again, I, that's, that kind of hits me. Um, my nostalgic feels, but there were lots of great ones, man. 51, Bernie Williams, Trevor Hoffman. Um, I'll tell you who I almost really thought about was Michael Doliak. Mm, I remember Michael night, Doliak. He played for the Magic, play. right? Yeah. Yeah. I play, watched, watching him play in college and um, Manti Teo was 51. There, It's actually a, it's actually a pretty stacked number. Um, so I was just wait until we get to 52. We might have to do two athletes each for 52 because now we're getting into <laughs> like, you know, linebackers. We're getting into offensive oh, yeah. linemen. There's going to be a lot of, of those. Uh, but anyway, enough of that. Enjoy part two of practice design and environmental design decluttering season. Hope you enjoy the episode. As always, leave us some feedback. Shoot us a DM. Shoot us a text. Tweet at us all those good things. We look forward to hearing your feedback about it. And uh, yeah, enjoy episode 51, part two of decluttering practice design and environments within your program. And I, I am almost upset at myself for not coming to that realization earlier, but it's because of people like Sahar, who that was like, such an eye-opening moment for me. I was like, man, we only do this because this is what we saw on TV. Mm -hmm. 
because we've the always cameras done. are in the locker room afterwards. Now, what I will say too, and this is part of the environmental design piece too, it's not a hard and fast rule that they never go to the locker room. The players have the choice of whether the coaches come in the locker room or not. And the way it was explained to me, the the players, and this was at the time we had the conversation. I don't know if it's happened more since then, but at the time that we had this conversation between, I think it was like me and Sahar, the two of us and Sahar, I don't remember, but the players had only asked for it twice. Once was after their first, after Sahar's first win as a head coach at Canisius. And once was after their first MAC tournament win with her as the head coach at Canisius. That was it. They don't, because they wanted to throw water on her. Mm-hmm. Right. So think about that environment too. And so it sort of leads me to the next point in terms of building your plan. And I think we had created this graphic a while back and we didn't really do anything with it, but it's the one with the concentric circles. And it's like person, player, team, program. And they slightly get bigger and bigger mm-hmm. and bigger, but we can't get to the program part unless we've taken care of the person part. This leads me to that, knowing that the players and the people in that program have the ultimate voice and choice over what their environment's going to be. Because Sahar was willing to give that away and say, listen, nothing good is going to come from me or our staff being in the locker room, whether we won or lost. Right? If we won, it's a huge celebration. We're beating on lockers. like It's super exciting. Cool. We still have to go back and watch it and correct things that didn't didn't work well. Right? And we can celebrate the things that did. And that's still true even if we lost. Like we need to correct the things that didn't work well and we still can celebrate the things that did go well. But the tone and tenor of those two locker rooms is going to be very different. Solely based on the fact of what the scoreboard said at the end of the game. So our effect on that environment as chief environmental officers our effect on that environment as coaches, nothing good is going to come from that. So we leave it to the players to figure out like, hey, do we want our coaches in the locker room after the game or not? And if they say yes, then it's going to be because we've prioritized them as you know, people first, players next, the team, and then the program. They feel like it would be beneficial for us to sort of do whatever it is, whether it's throwing water everywhere or if it's like, no coach, like there's drama on the team and like, we need you guys to be in there because we want to fix this right now. In which case, I mean, at that point too, that's where the coaches have a choice to say, ah, you know what? Emotions are pretty high right now. What we're going to do is we will talk to the, to the leadership on the team, whatever. And we're going to figure out a plan to address this tomorrow. So we're not allowing that entropy or like that next connection to like, we're not intentionally saying no to that next connection. We're changing what the next connection is going to be. And so even when we think about like, well, guys, you guys have been talking about this locker room thing for five minutes. I thought we were going to talk about 100-point games today. I thought we were going to talk about practice today. Yeah, we are talking about that. Because the next day in practice, what are we going to expect? We're going to expect our coaches to have be able to prime the room, to have some sort of film pulled up or something. And now we are going to have our post-mortem about the game. Now we are going to break these things down because we've seen it with a clearer eye. Because invariably, us going into the locker room creates more clutter. 
us going into the locker room delays our kids from getting to where they need to be. And on top of that, one of the other things that they do that I think is really valuable, instead of just getting your stuff and going and leaving, the expectation is they go into the stands and thank people for coming to watch them play. So now we're embedding some of that servanthood into it. Now we're embedding some of that gratefulness, some of that thankfulness into it. And it becomes a lesson. We played between these lines. We were gladiators between these lines. We fought, we scrapped, we did what we needed to do. Maybe we didn't do what we needed to do. But at the end of the game, there's people here who support us. We're going to be thankful that they're there. And so the last thing I'll say to this part, because I think this also is important. Engaging when you're watching from afar. So let's say you are coaching a team right now. Your players are playing in a summer league. Your players are playing in AAU. You're not coaching them. But you're live streaming the game or you're seeing it from up in the stands and you have a bit like the wide angle view of this. Very rarely is the coach that's on the floor able to see everything that you can see, right? We just talked about the vantage point not being very good. Being able to help your players see what you saw is super important to creating that environment within your program also. Hey, I saw these three, three, four things. Your coach that's on the sideline with you may not be able to see all those things, but trust and believe we are aligned in the fact that your body language was terrible. You did, you took some plays off. When we say sprint, it's sprint all the time. Hey, you shot the ball really well. You had great shot selection. Yeah, coach, but they didn't go in. It doesn't matter. You took really, really good shots. Right? So continuing to teach through even that part when you are not the one that is coaching them. Parents, that's something for you too. You create an environment. We haven't even talked about that. How are we helping our parents? Create an environment in the car, at home, post-game, pre-game, any of those things that then is still prioritizing in those concentric circles, person, player, team, program. That's where a lot of that misalignment comes from, is when they're just talking about their player and not their player's effect on the team and the program and ignoring the person altogether. I don't know what you think about all that. Yeah, I think one thing would be just kind of an interesting poll is to ask coaches, like, would you consider not going in the locker room after a game? Like, talk about that with your staff and kind of what what that would uh, what that would mean, like what that would feel like. Right. Because I I think. One thing that that does, like a kind of go not to belabor the the Sahar point too much, but like, yeah, they get an opportunity to go connect with the stakeholders, the community. You're you're sort of living up to who we say we're going to be, next connection, that kind of thing. There's value there, right? Um, but I also think coaches feel like, and maybe this is some one of those like well-intentioned things, but it's also kind of a selfish intention that we feel like we have to get in the locker room, especially after a loss, because we have to control the narrative. We have to go in there and say a few things to sort of maybe prime up that conversation that the kids are about to have that conversation they're about to have in the car. 
we got to head some of that off at the pass. Maybe you're about to go talk to the media. Maybe you're about to go talk to friends and family or message boards and stuff like that. And we feel like we don't trust our players to handle it unless we come in and say, hey, don't do this. And so that, I think in a way, we could argue that, uh, you know, we're telling on ourselves a little bit. You know, the fact that we don't have to go in there and harp on something for 30 minutes with our players might say like, hey, I trust them to handle the moments after that. And they don't need me to babysit them. And we'll trust the fact that we'll come back in tomorrow and we'll start working on this. You know, we want to hear coaches talk all the time, like keep stuff in house. Don't air dirty laundry. You know, be careful on that ride home with parents. Be careful who you talk to. Be careful what things get leaked on media and message boards and social media and blah, blah, blah. All of that stuff is is more clutter. That's more friction that we're creating. That's more entropy that we're creating. And we've talked about this a thousand times already. There's going to be enough of that naturally. We don't need to add any more to make our lives or jobs that much harder. So before you think like, man, I can't imagine not going in there and telling them 10 things that we did wrong to think about at night. Imagine perhaps what the what the opposite of that might feel like where you could let some of that stuff go and you don't have to carry that home with you and you can go home and know that we're going to handle it tomorrow where you might get a little better night's rest and you come back the next day fresher ready to attack those those issues ready for with more solutions but we we just now imagine doing that 10 12 weeks of a football season over and over and over again imagine doing it 25 35 times over a basketball season, 65 times over a baseball season. You know, that's that's the grind. That's where the friction grinds you down. And so if we can figure out another way to go about it, especially, and here's the cool thing that I, or the thing that I, I, I think is cool, but I don't understand why people don't look at things this way. If we're looking for an edge, if we're looking for a way to separate ourselves, if everybody's doing X, why don't we do some Ys? If everybody else is doing it this way and we lack the talent, we lack the resources, we lack the facility, if we're, if, if we're trying to play keep up with the Joneses and we're trying to be the Joneses, but we are not the Joneses, then why don't we go and, and be us? Why don't we go try to zig when everybody else is zagging somewhere else? And maybe that's, maybe that's our competitive advantage. Maybe that's our space to make up some of that ground and be a leader in a different way, maybe even be sort of an, an, an industry leader and, and be a trendsetter and be willing to do things. But if we're just constantly trying to do everything because it's what we've always done or what everybody else does, and we're constantly behind and we're constantly playing catch up, well, then this is where we get an opportunity to be innovative, to be creative, to be you know, who we probably think we are. We have a better opportunity to go do that now. And I'm and maybe this is a, a great moment in this conversation to shift it a little bit because you mentioned parents a little bit, and then you mentioned the hundred point game. So maybe this is where now we can actually get into those moments and talk about, um, you know, you mentioned the mental transitions either for getting into practice or maybe even in the middle of practice. But I think this is a great moment to shift it in terms of like what we're actually doing in practice. So maybe not a part two to the episode, but like a side B to the track here. Um, yeah, it's like the third quarter of the episode now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now, now we're getting into how do we actually become more efficient in the design of practice. So now we want to talk drills. All right, let's talk drills. So I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this. I'm gonna tee you up here. 
and I'm going to throw it to you. I'm going to sit back and I'm just going to listen. Collapsing timeframes, utilizing your small-sided games, utilizing defense and offense at the same time, getting away from more of that block practice. You know, it's a defensive drill or is this an offensive drill? No, it's a, it's a basketball drill. It's a teaching tool. It's not an offensive drill or a deep. We're going to learn how to get something done here. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw a couple things to you. Um, and again, just kind of tee you up and let you, let you take off here. If I said the words collapse time, collapsing time frames and competitive congruence to you, go. <laughs> so it's funny when we're both caffeinated and we're not doing this in like, you know, 11 o'clock at night, how like our brains both work to how we're going to transition the conversation. Cause that's, yep. if you hadn't said all this. I literally would have been like, hey, this is a great time to talk about 100-point <laughs> games and competitive congruence because that's what this is. Um, you know, I think collapsing timeframes takes on two, two meanings. So, and, and part of this is decluttering also, but I think collapsing timeframes, the first thing is getting a, ahead of potential misconceptions and getting ahead of potential confusion that what we're doing is going to be really messy what we're going to, what we're doing is going to be um a little countercultural in terms of what you may have experienced elsewhere and so when i think about like our parent retreat that we do that's a lot of the messaging is this may come across to you as very like what in the world like we've never done this before because a lot of our parents wherever you are a lot of our parents are still stuck in the trap of AAU, private trainers, block practice. I'm paying to have them run around for two hours and they just like they look sweaty at the end of it. So I think I got my money's worth. But realistically, like their player never gets any better. Like over the course of three or four years of doing the same crap over and over again, like you and I have seen it. Coaches who are listening right now are probably nodding in their cars or on their Pelotons or, you know, on whatever, whatever you're listening right now is what you're doing. Uh, you're probably thinking like, oh, my God, yeah, they don't get any better. They just get older. So part of collapsing timeframes is having those conversations in advance of this is why we're doing this. This is when this is going to show up. Here are examples of all of those things understand that this is what this is. So then once you've had those conversations, we can then collapse timeframes in practice because we don't have to explain every day like, hey, we're going to do something that might be different than what you've done in the past before. And eventually the kids are having those conversations when new players come into the program, if they've been there for, you know, a year or two. Because they're like, oh yeah, we don't really do what you did in in the college level, right? We didn't really do what you did in high school here. That should have been explained to you in the recruiting process, but I'm telling you, like, that's real. So there's the alignment, there's recruiting people every day. That's part of the process to collapsing those timeframes is being able to wrap your head around, this is just how we do things here. Um, so in, the, in terms of the planning piece, and we have a, a good... Um, resource for this, our drills assessment. You can reach out if you, you know, we mentioned the drills assessment before. Feel free to reach out. We'll send it to you. Um, that drills assessment, when we're thinking about like 
are we getting the things we say we need? Are we getting a game-like rep out of it? Are we getting game-like shots out of it? Are we getting, you know, whatever you prioritize in your program? Are we sprinting, spacing, seeking, shot selection, all of those things on both sides? All of a sudden, you can cut your quote-unquote drill library down to like six or seven things and then put shooting and, you know, little other things around it that get you the reps that you need in your practices. So I'll, I'll give an example here of why I actually found that uh, the place that I'm coaching now, Worcester Academy, was a really good fit. I was talking to the athletic director in the interview process, and he was like, hey, you know, we have eight teams that need to practice, and we have two courts. So practices are, are generally going to be about an hour and a half to maybe an hour and 45 minutes tops. And I said, okay, right, it's all right. That's fine. Like an hour and a half. Great. That's a constraint for me. If I'm intentional, we can collapse our timeframes to where we might even have a little bit of extra time left over at the end. And if we are gamifying our practices, so through things like 100 point games, we could play 100 point games for 20 minutes of an hour and a half practice and get better reps in that 20 minutes than we would have gotten doing block drills or doing any number of other things just for the sake of doing them, because that's what we think basketball practice is supposed to look like. So that carries me to the next point about collapsing timeframes. And we talk a lot, a lot about like big rocks. Our big rocks are our essential elements. So this is part of decluttering as well. This is part of creating that clarity as well. What is it that we're trying to get out of the environment we create in practice? Are we eliciting those character habits as it pertains to the sport? Are we eliciting some of those things in every part of practice? Or are we just picking and choosing when they show up and when we give feedback about them? So we also then can collapse timeframes in practice. If A, we are looking through what the misconceptions could be, but B, and, and this is probably more important, and maybe this is its own separate episode at some point, we can collapse timeframes if our feedback is generally always the same. And here's what I mean by that. I ask players this question a lot. Hey, what do you think I'm going to say right now about what just happened? And at first, players come up with thousands of coach-speak responses. Thousands. I've heard unique responses on every team I've been with, on every player that I've ever asked that question to. And probably like after a week of practice, and I ask that question to the same kid a week later, they'll come up with spacing, sprinting, seeking, or shot selection. And then you ask the next question. Tell me more about that. What do you think our shot selection could have been? Oh, well, if I had gone here and we had passed the ball there, then we get a two-on-one right here that then leads to a nine because we have one of our best players one-on-one -on -one from the wing with an empty corner. Great. Now we can collapse time frames even more because we don't need to ask that question again because our players know what they're looking for. It's now a matter of them going to do it.
So intentionality wise, I can then go into tomorrow's practice plan or the practice plan for the next five days and say, all right, this is the rep that we need and we need this player to get it. And we need these players to understand how this player's train of thought is correct and how we can manipulate the environment to match what we want. So in thinking like an educator, I might have a really, really good player. Like one of my players right now, really blessed to have this kid on the team for another year. She'll be a senior. She's already committed to Penn State. Like she's going to go play in the Big Ten. One of the better players in our league. Really, really good player. She also, though, doesn't know what she doesn't know. And so we spent probably 45 minutes on Google Meet the other day going through some clips that I had pulled from an Aces game talking about these exact same things, laying the foundation ahead of time so that we can collapse timeframes when we get to actually practice in the winter and she's recovered from her injury. So this isn't also just about the physical aspect of this. It's getting reps without reps. Because that helps us collapse timeframes too, because we don't have to rehash 900 things that we could get reps without reps on just by watching it via film, drawing it out, talking about it, having structured conversation, having leading questions, making the players talk to each other, like our friend was talking about, we mentioned at the beginning of the episode. So collapsing timeframes isn't just not doing things, it's doing things ahead of time that then create the clarity and declutter the space for you to be able to collapse those timeframes within practice. Um, I think a good example of that too is listening to anything Mike Neighbors talks about. Like they practice twice a week or something, right? He's like, well, we don't need to practice 10 hours a week. We can just do this and really be intentional about how we structure our practices. I think the other thing that you asked about um, is the competitive congruence piece. And truth be told, like I'll spill a little bit of the tea here. Like when I was an assistant at the college institution that I was just an assistant at for four years, we tried the competitive congruence model, but the issue was that it had nothing to do with playing time. So all we were doing was just like keeping score in practice, but it didn't really affect who played and who didn't. You see what I'm saying? So in a manner of speaking, like if you're going to compete in practice, it needs to have a direct tie-in to roles on the team and the competition needs to serve as feedback to the players and the only way to do that is as you are collapsing these time frames being very intentional about decluttering the scoring in whatever you're doing to ensure that the scoring matches with whatever habits you are trying to elicit and trying to teach and so it puts everybody on an equal playing field of Hey, if I go get offensive rebounds, if I take great shots, if I do all these things, then reasonably, those are the habits that I'm displaying in practice that should translate to the game. And that's where the most misalignment comes from. So when we we sort of dial it back here a little bit, the whole point of the game sense approach is to help it translate to the actual game. So when we put competition into it, it's not just who's going to get buckets. It's who's doing the things we need to translate to the game. So again, with the collapsing of timeframes, if we're doing our work early enough and setting those expectations and those standards of how we want to play, aka our game model, aka our essential elements, explaining all of that stuff and then aligning practice to that, aligning the feedback to it, now we have left no room for clutter. 
right? Like that's just reality. Like we have taken that entropy and just shoved it to the side and saying, this is what we're going to be about. This is the feedback you're going to get. That feedback is going to come in a multitude of ways. It's going to come from me. It's going to come from my assistant coach. It's going to come from the other players. And it's going to come from the actual games that we are playing in practice. If you can handle all of those things, and I'm sure it's actually coming from more than that, right? It's going to come from the film. It's going to come from et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If we can handle all of those things, all of a sudden that competition in practice is directly congruent to how much you play, how much you contribute, whether you're being picked for teams or not by your teammates within practice, and it sort of creates a very different conversation around playing time. So when we're talking about collapsing timeframes and even the feedback piece or like the post-practice piece, we talked about post-game with Sahar and stuff like that, All of a sudden, how can any player walk into your office and say, coach, I think I should play more? Oh, do you? Let's pull up our competitive congruence tracker. Let's pull up the practice plans for the last week before this game. You tell me what habits you showed based on how much you won in practice and based on what we were doing in practice that tells me you should play more or that you deserve to start. Or that you should be on the floor at the end of the game. Right? That's what the game sense approach is. It's can you show these habits repeatedly, these positive habits? That is your basketball character. We are measuring, we're trying to quantify that. There is a qualitative piece to it as well. Absolutely, right? There's a storytelling piece to it as well. If you are as good as you think you are, then you're going to show these things repeatedly. We just had a recruit on campus the other day, and I pulled up our evaluation rubric. Same concept. That's collapsing timeframes. That is competitive congruence. Hey, I'm competitive. I want to get a five in all of these categories. It may take me a year to move from a three to a four, but I'm going to do it because I'm competitive. And now that competition makes our team better. It makes our program better because the player and the person have gotten better. So we've hit all of those concentric circles. And that is how we use the collapsing of timeframes and competitive congruence and the intentionality to prime all of the rooms that we're in to create an environment, which is what this whole podcast was about. Right? We've created that environment as the CEO of the program, the chief environmental officer, as best we can to make sure that we have shoved the entropy to the side, that we are focused, we have a singular focus on what's important to us that contributes to winning in all of those categories because we have done this the right way and we've, we've made the intentional effort to declutter our program and our our environmental design. I don't know if people can hear this or not, but we have definitely, we're definitely recording this during the day on coffee. Like this is, we're rolling. And there's a a noticeable difference. I'm on my second page of notes already um, because thoughts are just, they're just, they're flowing right now. And this is, this has been awesome. I like the whole like 
um, a few things. Like you mentioned the word game model. And one of the things that I wrote down was like, yes, you got to have just sort of this plan in place. Like, how do we want to play? So how do we collapse some of these timeframes? Okay, well, if we can figure out how we want to play on offense, then that should directly dictate how we want to play defense. Because if we value A, B, and C on the offensive side of the ball, then that should be the three very things that we're trying to take away or eliminate our opponents being able to do. So if we value paint touches like crazy, we probably don't want to allow our opponents to get into the paint. And if we say we do on one end or the other, then we're being where there's 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 a, a massive misalignment there. Because now we get to practice these things one time instead of having to do it on one end for 10 minutes and on another end for 10, we could probably do the same thing for seven and a half and that seven and a half be much more valuable and allow us to get to other things. So if you can trim your practice time from an hour 45 down to an hour or from two and a half hours down to an hour and a half or an hour 15 down to 45, it's not just practicing less, but you've now opened the space for other things, rest, recovery, yoga, a lift, a team meeting, a meal, something else along those lines. And you are, you have, you have decluttered a lot of the mind capital for your players. This type of shot is good. This type of shot is bad, which means on the other end of the floor, we want to allow these and disallow those. That automatically cuts down on a lot of that. And you've been able to say like a player coming in, hey, I think I should play more. Okay, state your case. The floor is yours. Tell me, show me. Based on our essential elements and our game model and our values and standards and blah, blah, blah. And what most players probably will do is they'll be like, Kyle, why do you think you should play more? Well, because a seam's doing it. No, no, no. Don't tell me you should play because somebody else is not doing something. Tell me why you should play. What are you doing to get that spot, to earn that spot, to take that time, whatever? There's only so many minutes in a basketball game. There's only so many positions. There's only there's only one ball. There's only so many positions on a football field. So many positions and subs in a baseball game. If you want to state your case, show me tangible evidence that you're upholding all of the things that we say we're going to be about. But it's not the player's fault if they can't do that if you don't have those tangible things in that system in place, you're inviting that entropy and that conversation for them to walk in and be like, I think I should play more because I think you don't like me. I think you're playing favorites. And if you don't have that stuff established, I'm not saying that the player is right, but they certainly have more leg to stand on. And I feel like you have less of a leg to stand on because of that. The other example, or or maybe the first time, I never called it collapsing timeframes, but I remember the exact moment in my coaching career when I thought something probably needed to change and I was wondering what was going on. And it was Thanksgiving break at Cedar Creek, and I had three players at a practice. Most of my players played football. They were in a playoff push. It is what it is. I dealt with it every year, but I I wasn't fully prepared for this moment when it happened. And it was like, they were like, should we just go home? And it was like, we we play next week, guys. (laughs) Like, if football loses, we have to play a game. 
And if they win, then we might have to fourth, like we'll have to figure it out. But like we have three people here over Thanksgiving break. It's a Wednesday. Thanksgiving's tomorrow. We play on Monday in a tournament. What are we going to do? And it was like, man, what? And and I'm sure at the mo- in the moment, I just gave them a good sweat. I gave them a good workout. We got something done, you know, but it was probably a lot of isolated block this or that. And thinking back now, like, man, we could have done two on one decision making. We could have played one on one back tap. Like there were so many things we could have done. Could have played 21. We could have played 21 for 45 minutes. And that would have been the most valuable practice we had all year. I wasn't ready for that yet, but I remember having that conversation because then a week, the very next week when we got back, our girls coach said they weren't going to practice that day. And I was like, why not? She was like, well, we only have eight players. We can't go five on five. And I was like, you have eight players? I had three. What's going on here? How do we? How are we going to figure this out? And then, of course, I, I think football lost and we ended up getting everybody. So we all just show up to a game and we get hammered because we don't know what's going on. But then it was like this realization, like, man, this is going to happen every year. Like, we're going to have to figure out how to play really, really quickly. We have one gym. We don't have a PE. Like, all of these constraints, all of these resources we didn't have. And what, you know, again, looking at that, I've made this point before, but you're looking at that as, like, reasons to not be successful. And really, those were a ton of great opportunities baked in for us to get better and utilize what we what we did have. And the thoughts of things like, all right, what happens most in a game? Identify those things. And if we're not working on those in relevant, necessary ways in order to impact winning, then why are we doing them? How much fluff and stuff are we doing in a practice just to get into practice from a a dynamic warm-up standpoint, a pre-practice standpoint, a 10-minute meeting before we start practice? You know, you think, 30 minutes before you actually start practice is a lot of stuff that you could probably cut out to begin with and just kind of get into it, get to the point, get after it. And now we've increased the amount of, or the increased the return on investment that we can have per drill, per connection, per teaching point, per whatever. And a lot of times I think coaches feel like they don't have time to, I may be jumping around here a little bit, but I don't have time to, to bake in think time. I don't have time to allow for reflection in practice. I don't have time to ask questions and wait on them to answer. You do if you make the time you utilize higher ROIs. You do if you bake that in to the recipe before you get started. You do have time for that if you prioritize it and collapse the time frames um, in that way. And I and Again, I, I remember thinking like, man, something doesn't feel right. There's friction in my brain right now with what I'm doing. But A, this is what everybody else is doing, so it has to be right. Maybe I'm doing it wrong. I'm not working hard enough. I should go deeper down this hole. But it felt like something was wrong. I was just not in a place or exposed to the things yet that were going to help us solve some of those things. But I remember those, um, I remember those vividly. Uh, and probably some of the most impactful moments when I was coaching. Um, and you, uh, I think you had a couple of really good examples going back to, um, you know, kind of taking the the O and the D and, um, you know, being able to 
utilize the time that we're having. I know you've got a couple of drills that are favorites of yours. Um, and we've already been droning on for, I don't know how long. So I figure what the heck, let's just go ahead and dive into a couple specific examples and we'll just sort of let the chips fall where they may. Yeah. So I think, you know, we, we talked about hundred point games a lot. Um, What's ironic, though, is we've never done a pod on 100-point games, so I think maybe that'll be something we do after we Later, finish yeah. this series. Maybe it can be in a couple weeks. I think we've, you know, not to to jump ahead to that, but I think doing one on 100-point games and then also one about impacting winning, uh, especially with what's going on in July with, you know, AAU and stuff like that. I think it's important that we talk about what actually impacts winning. Um, but two of them that I wanted to bring up, and I put them in the chat here, uh, you know, just so I didn't forget. But also, you know, they just sprang to mind. Is what I call perfect possession. And then another one is called Spurs cutthroat. And I think if there were two, let's say, you know, we always do this sort of thought exercise. is like, coach, if you could only pick one drill to do the for the rest of your life what would it be like mine would be 100 point games hmm. if you gave me three of them it would be 100 point games perfect possession and spurs cutthroat and so i think it's funny about what you said like the um you know oh we only have eight players we can't go five on five yeah okay whatever like you can still play perfect possession you can still play spurs cutthroat might have to get a little creative with Spurs Cutthroat because you kind of need three teams for it, but you play that two on two, you could play it three on three, you could play it four on four, you could play it five on five, depending on how many kids you have. And perfect possession is is, you know, I think we've talked about it maybe in the practice episodes, but the reason that I think it helps with number one, competitive congruence, and number two, collapsing time frames. We know how long we're gonna allot for this, and we don't have to go over that amount. Because it's incumbent on the players to get it done. And the whistle and the constraints really give the feedback so that you don't have to spend a lot of time talking through a bunch of things. So the way that I play this game, and other people can play it however they want based on what's important to them. Shot clock is at 60 seconds, or actually game clock is at 60 seconds. We put the shot clock at 15 just so that we're not having, you know, 30 second long possessions. Sometimes we'll start it at 30. And then as we go, if we want the offense to kind of ramp it up a little bit or try to hunt a shot in a little bit faster way, we might put it at 20. We might put it at 24, whatever you can. You can mess with it based on the skill level and the, the understanding of your players. I think early in the season started at 30 later in the season where we maybe, you know, working it a little down so that we can keep our offense pretty sharp. But again, those are things that we're collapsing those time frames. If your offensive possessions are only meant to last 12, 15, 24 seconds, you're probably going to have to go pretty fast, right? And your players are going to have to synapse a little bit faster, even though they might be tired or whatever it is. And the whole goal is for the defense to run down that 60 seconds by playing what we would consider perfect quote unquote defense. And we say perfect, it's not ever going to be perfect, but there are certain things we don't want to allow. So number one would be obviously a made shot, right? An offensive rebound. So we get an offensive rebound, the clock automatically resets. Um, hands on your shorts when you're playing defense and then a foul. 
if you really wanted to take this to the next level, so you talked about middle penetration, Kyle, if we allow any middle penetration, it's an automatic reset. So now we're using the clock, we're using the environment, we're using the whistle, we're using the constraints to give the feedback to our players instead of just begging them to not allow middle penetration. You will not win if you allow middle penetration. And if we're using our competitive congruence model, yeah, I don't know about you, Kyle, but like scoring isn't even really part of winning in perfect possession, right? It could be if you're on the offensive side, but if you are trying to run down that clock as quickly as possible, you're going to have to do that on the defensive side. You have to win this game by defending the paint. You have to win this round of this to run down these 60 seconds in the allotted like seven and a half minutes that you get. And then the other team also gets seven and a half minutes. Whoever does it faster wins. All of a sudden, all these kids who are bent on being a scoring this or like scoring the most points, whatever, whatever. All of a sudden, if I know as a player, like I won in three on three or whatever, and I get to pick up my team and I know we're doing perfect possession. Bro, I'm not picking any of those kids. I'm trying to win this so I get to play tomorrow night. I got I might get to start tomorrow night and we're getting to the point where it's 5 on 5 in practice and like you know, we could all get a win for this. I'm picking the kids that are going to lock somebody up. Right? I'm picking the kids that are going to help me protect the paint or that are going to rebound the ball. And so on the flip side of that, offensively, yeah, you are trying to score. You are not feeling bad for the other team. You are competing. But what we're really working is our ability to tag up an offensive rebound. What we're really working is taking really good shots quickly in possessions. So we are hunting those shots. We are seeking those shots as quickly as we can get them because we want to reset the other team. Because if they go past seven and a half minutes, now all we have to do is run that clock down. It could take us seven minutes and 29 seconds and we still win. If we take a charge in our time in that seven and a half minutes that we get, we automatically win. That's a win for all of us in that in, in that segment of practice. So that not only collapses timeframes, but it creates tremendous competitive congruence because it's exactly what we are trying to do every single possession of every single game. All right, so then Spurs Cutthroat, very similarly, the only way you can score is by getting a stop. So you play offense to be able to get a bucket or to get them sent off because they're not talking or because they, you know, allowed an offensive rebound or, you know, any of the other constraints we might put on it. Those are generally the ones. So it's a foul, giving up an offensive rebound, not talking on defense, um, or obviously allowing a score. So very similar types of, of constraints to the game. But the difference is once you're off, a new defense, so the offense that did that to you becomes the defense, and now they have an opportunity to get points by getting stops. So when we gamify getting stops, and this is a conversation we had the other day, uh, Tommy and I were talking about this, like, why is it that every small-sided game gives the advantage to the offense? Well, this is a very even small-sided game, and the advantage is to the offense, hey, these are the four ways that you can send the defense off and then get to go play defense but you still have to win the game on defense. And your advantage is you get points the more stops you get. So if we start treating the game 
like that. If we say, hey, right now, we just got reset to zero stops. You're getting sent off. These new kids are coming on in a sub. All right, we need to get a point on defense right now. We need to get a stop right now and turn that into offense. Instead of only focusing on the ball going through the basket in order to score. So those would be the two things. I think that the collapse time frames the most, they create a lot of that competitive congruence. And it's also a sort of a gut check for your players. You didn't allow that shot. Like one person didn't allow that shot. We all allowed that shot because we didn't communicate with each other. We, I didn't allow that offensive rebound. We allowed that offensive rebound because we didn't box out in the paint and hit and get on the perimeter. So it really puts on display the habits that your players currently have, what's their level of engagement, what's their level of connection with each other, and it's an opportunity to teach that leadership and character part that we talked about last week to say, like, it's not any one person's fault. It's all of our fault. How are we going to hold each other accountable to doing these things the right way? For what it's worth, my three would be two-on-one shooting, four-on-two transition, and 100-point games. If I had to do three with pre-practice uh, 21. So as soon as somebody walks into the gym, as soon as there's two people in the gym, practice starts, you're playing 21, pick up, go to a basket, two on one shooting, four on two. If we could get full court or if we had to, we could make it sort of into a half court version or then I would go 100 point games and that's how we would finish up every day. And I feel like if you did that for 45 minutes every day, you're you're just again you're getting back to ROI. What happens most in games? What's most relevant? What's going to impact winning? And I think a great challenge here, um, maybe as we as we wrap this up, is if you had to pick and do three things. If you had to pick and do three things, what would those be? If, I, if you only could do three things in 45 minutes, if that was all you had and from the, the, the absolute constraint that you had, what would those three things be? How long would it take you? And then how would you debrief it? <laughs>